All right. Well, if you are one of our guests, uh, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are really pleased that you've come our way today. Uh, We do have a couple of guests that I want to make sure that you're aware of. You know that we've been involved in four uh, church plants through the years that we specifically planted. And one of those a few years ago was in Duval with Jim and Jennifer Larrabee. And is Jim hiding? He slipped out. He's got a kid thing going on. But anyway, they're right over here in the middle, and uh, they're on vacation. Right now, they're, they're over in Monroe serving another church uh, as pastors and staff there. And uh, we are so excited that you came our way on your little vacation time. It's great to see you. And I don't know whose children those are because last time I saw you, they were like way little. But what a treat to have you guys today. But... Uh, We not only have been involved through the years in church planting in a real direct kind of way, but we continue to be involved in church planting all around Puget Sound and all around the Northwest in a more indirect way through our partnerships with our association and our convention. And uh, a new work is beginning uh, to get underway in Auburn. And uh, Dennis, why don't you guys come and stand with me? Um, I had the privilege of seeing that they had come in the house today. And so I said, well, let's just take a minute to pray for them. And find out a little bit about what's going on with uh, the new work. So go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit to us and tell us what's happening and um, how can we pray for you. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to have you pray with us. We are starting this church in Auburn. We've actually been involved uh, for over a year now in laying the groundwork for our church plant. It's in the south end of Auburn in an area called Lakeland, and it sets up on a hill in what is called a master plan community. Uh, but one of the things that we noticed when we first started visiting down there is that the master had a lot of work that uh, could be done through us, and of course we're talking about our master. Uh, I kind of went in one time just incognito into the uh, homeowners association office and was inquiring about houses if we were looking to, to purchase a home down there and begin this work and uh, I said I noticed as I go around the area that there aren't too many churches that are visible and the gal there in the office said well she says you know they're around but she said quite frankly there aren't a whole lot of people up here that go to church and I thought well Lord uh, are you telling me something here that this is a mission field where we really truly need to be planting And he has answered that uh, in the affirmative. And so we've been, uh, like I say, for the last year and a half or so, we've been underway in the process of uh, getting started down there. We are having services every other week currently. And then in October, we plan an official launch. And so God has moved us from where we were living before, which was in Kent down to Auburn, Um, that was a miracle in itself because uh, we weren't able to sell the home that we were living in, and so we're renting it, but uh, it's a new home. Uh, We began ministering to a lady in Lakeland who had just lost her husband, and um, it was a great opportunity for us because not only am I a church planter, but Debbie and myself are also involved with funeral-related work, and so we were able to come in and minister to this lady as she was going through the grieving process of losing her husband, and it was just one of the neat things, and we had no idea where she lived at that point. She'd actually been in a couple of Bible studies that we've had over the last year 
or so, and so that's how we were able to connect with her initially. But God directed us uh, through many different circumstances. It's too long of a story to share here, but uh, we ended up moving down to Lakeland, and this lady lives, lives about a quarter of a mile from our house. And so when her husband was dying, we were visiting in the hospital. We were at her house daily. Uh, then when he was turning you know, really ill, we were at her house in the, in the evenings. Uh, we were with her the night. It was just, we were there just uh, less than a week before uh, you know, was dying. And so it was just a tremendous opportunity. And involved in our church, or, or I say they, uh, the lady and her daughter. Um, and there's a whole group of people from Lakeland who are involved with us currently, as well as people from around the surrounding area. But again, there's uh, probably 4% of the people in that area that, that attend church at any location. And so it's a mission field, and we're very excited about uh, being there. And my wife, Debbie, uh, again, you know, we're a team, and we have, uh, you know, a good group of people that are working with us. But we covet your prayers for our work as we begin to go to what is called, you know, the, the actual launch. We're doing what is a soft launch approach every week. And then, like I say, we will be meeting regularly in October. Uh, we prayed for God to uh, open up a door for us to be able to have church services on the top of the hill. God has answered that prayer. We're meeting in the community center where you know, the HOA office is there. And this lady that I initially talked to, I see her almost on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm involved in the social committee there. And so we have made lots of connections in that area already. So we're just excited to see what God uh will do over the next of the course of the next uh, couple of years we just finished up with our second sports camp there and this uh, was about two weeks ago we had 10 kids pray to receive Christ in that camp Wow! and so we're just very excited about connecting now with the parents and doing the follow up work with those kids and that just shares just a, you know, a thumbnail sketch of some of the things that we're doing in Lakeland and you're going to call the church Reliance Church I'm sorry that I didn't mention that uh and that's taken basically from uh, my understanding of uh, John 15:5. that basically without Jesus, we can do nothing of any spiritual value for him. And so our reliance on him and we covet your prayers in our behalf as we continue to plant this church. All right. Well, we're going to pray for you right now. There's just a few of you that are around from the early days when we planted. And so uh, some of you don't know what. A scary, risky, adventuresome, exciting, hard work uh, kind of thing this is. And so, so uh, we're going to say a word of prayer for you today, and we'll be remembering you uh, as the Lord brings you to mind in the days to come. Okay? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for laying your hand on Dennis and Debbie and for this new work in the Auburn area. Uh, we thank you for continuing to reach out to those who do not know you yet throughout Puget Sound and the Northwest. And we pray blessings on this effort, Lord, that you would uh, bring the provisions that are necessary, that you'd bring wisdom, that uh, you would guide in the variety of relationships right now. These ten kids that just came to Christ, celebrate, we praise you, and we ask for favor with their families so that uh, they might be discipled and grown in their faith. And, uh, Lord, we pray for your protection, hearts and minds, 
that they uh, not fall to discouragement along the way. And we pray for your favor with uh, potential uh, teammates that will be uh, involved in this plant with them. We commit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. All right. I guess I need my Bible. You have your Bible? Good. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 16 in just a moment and at Acts chapter 1 and 2. And uh, you'll find it beneficial to find those passages and read along with us in just a moment. Um, so most of you know that I have been gone for a while. My first Sunday after a few weeks of being away from you. And uh, across those weeks, I will be free for us for six weeks in a row. I just want to say a personal word of thanks. I uh, don't appreciate how high you set the bar on preaching, but uh, really, really am grateful for you bringing the word to our church family over those weeks. And uh, many of you have commented about that, and I don't need to hear any more. Uh, many of you have commented. Okay. So uh, we're going to be talking today and over the next few weeks about what's it mean to be church? What's it mean to be church? And when you think about that word, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I'm one of those that when I grew up, I, I grew up in a going family. And so church was a little bit foreign to me. And almost always in my mind, if you mentioned church, I was thinking building. And there was this church over there, and there was this church over there, and there was this church over there. And it was just these, like, buildings and locations. Some of you have may, may have come from a more church tradition, and so you even think about it beyond buildings to think about, oh, bishops and superintendents and priests and ministers and elders and deacons and all kinds of offices and roles that people play in church. How is it you think about church? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, the church did not begin as an institution. It did not begin as a building. It did not begin as staff and officers and things like that. It did not begin with a hierarchy. And so we're going to do a little time travel back to when church first happened and take a look at what that was all about. And what we will find is that church was, and in its truest sense today, is a movement. Not a building, not an institution, not a hierarchy and staff and office and so on. A movement. And thus we're talking today about the church is moving. Some of you saw that title and you were wondering, are we about to leave this location? It doesn't have anything to do with that. And this movement was totally galvanized around an event. And, and that's so important for us to grasp because uh, maybe right after thinking about the church as an institution and as a building and this organization and so on, we think about the church as a collection of the teachings of Jesus. And the teachings of Jesus are extremely important to us. They are a treasure to us. 
But the church was actually built upon an event, not the teachings of Jesus. And that event was his resurrection. And I'm going to talk more about how much of a difference that made next week. But today, let's just suffice to say, it was this event that was so stunningly amazing, never before seen kind of thing, uh, that a, a movement was just exploded out of that event. Now, that word church is a Greek word, ekklesia. You like that word? Say it with me. Ekklesia. You guys are Greek scholars already. And uh, in so many English versions and English translations of the ancient Greek New Testament, ekklesia is translated church. But what the word basically means is it's, it's two words put together, ek meaning out, klesia or kaleo meaning to call. And so it refers to the called out ones. In other words, followers of Jesus, those who were called out by Jesus or by the Spirit of God to be followers of him and to engage in this movement. It also could be rightly said to be a gathering or a group of people. But no sense of building, organization, institution, hierarchy, all those kinds of things. So where does all that come from? How do we move from movement to institution and organization or to buildings? How does that happen? Well, as you get farther and farther away from that initial resurrection explosion that launched this entire movement, people began to drift from moving to more stationary kinds of experiences. And there was a German word that began to come into play at this point. That, and I don't have any background with German, so I don't even know how to say K-I-R-C-H-E. But the word basically means in German uh, to English, the Lord's house. And that's the word that is usually ascribed to church. And it's a throwback to the ideas that were around the Old Testament temple. Now, in the Old Testament days, temple began to be thought of as the house of God, the place where God resides. And, and they began to so put God in a box. And God was constantly trying to say, I'm not in a box, I'm not in a box, I'm not in a box. But they, they continued to put so much emphasis on the building, the temple, that when a day came that uh, they were in this war and they lost it and their temple was destroyed and they were carried off into exile to another country, they thought they had been separated from God because they no longer were near the temple. The temple no longer existed. God's house was gone. And so they had a faith crisis, you know, all these miles away because their church building, if you will, no longer existed. And so that's. That really began to put more into a concrete kind of way of our thinking and of our association of what is church? House of God, place of God, where uh, people gather around God. We have offices uh, to lead in the serving of God in this place. But that is not from the original biblical intent. And here's what else began to happen in those kinds of scenarios. Whoever controlled the building... And whoever controlled the scriptures basically controlled the people. 
Now you go, how could you control the scriptures? Well, in those days, the scriptures were not available to everybody. Every copy was a handwritten copy, so they were very rare, they were very few, and they were very expensive. And uh, they were in ancient languages of Hebrew and Greek, and there were very few people of whatever culture and whatever language that also knew Hebrew and Greek. And so it was a very limited number of people who knew the scriptures and who then began to run the buildings and therefore began to have control over the people. Do you see where this is headed for a bad ending? Now, if you are able to control the people, people who have power concerns are very interested in how you're able to do this. And so soon, church and state began to be one and the same. Because state and government began to say, hey, this is a great way to control people. This is a great way to run a a country. And what we're watching and what we're witnessing with all that is a further move, a further move, a further move, a further move away from church as movement to church as institution. Then along came a guy by the name of William Tyndale. Now, William Tyndale understood the languages. Hebrew and Greek. He also knew uh, German and Latin and some other things. And he began to be convicted by God that in the English speaking world, everybody needed to have the scriptures available and readable. And it just so happened Tyndale lived in the day when the printing press had been created. And so now the possibility was not just to have handwritten limited editions of the scriptures, but you could actually mass produce them with a printing press. And he's like, so what if I make an English version? Now, this uh, was considered by the church authorities to be a very bad idea. Can you imagine? Because all of us today have an English version and there are dozens of English versions today. But back in the day, in the 15th century, in the 16th century, the common person did not have their own copy of the scriptures. And he thought it would be a good idea if we did. And so he undertook the task of translating into English the ancient Hebrew and Greek. And this got him so sideways with the church and the state because they had merged this whole power thing, that he was soon arrested, tortured, condemned, burned at the stake, and martyred for translating the Bible into English. Is that amazing or what? Do we have some level of gratitude for this or what? When he was under trial, Tyndale said in his testimony, which didn't win him any points with the authorities that be, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. Sounds like an insurrectionist. I'm going to make sure everybody that wants to know the Scriptures, can know the Scriptures, and they'll know as much or more than any of you hierarchical church leaders. Well, as I said, he was condemned and killed. Now, 
One of the things that drove them crazy in his English translation is that when he came to the word ecclesia, he did not and would not translate it church. He translated it congregation. And he was seeking to preserve that idea that it's not some institution over here. It's a group of people who are in a movement. And he paid with his life in the attempt to keep that dream alive. So we're going to begin to look at some of the scriptures that give birth to a theology about what does it mean to be church. And we're going to back up to the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you have your hard, fought-for, labored-over English scriptures, let me encourage you to open them up to Matthew 16. Real quick historical context. This is a time when Jesus had been going all over the area preaching and doing miracles and mighty works, and people were uh, beginning to follow him and turn to God in new kinds of repentant ways. There's all kinds of questions in, okay, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? So, In chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus sits down with his disciples and he just poses the question that everybody else is asking. uh, Who am I? What do you think? So pick it up with me in verse 16. Uh, Jesus had just said, so who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. That's a word that also means Messiah. You are the son of the living God. In other words, you're not just a prophet. You're not just a teacher. You're not just the greatest uh, storyteller of uh, parables that we've ever heard. You are the long-awaited-for Messiah, Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This is a God thing. God showed you something. But my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, and this is a big verse here, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, let's talk about what's in this text for just a minute, particularly verse 18. Jesus said, I'm going to build my ecclesia upon this rock. Was he saying, I'm going to build my building? I'm going to build my institution? I'm going to build my organization? I'm going to build my movement on this rock. And what was the rock? Obviously, there are large segments of the Christian world that believe Jesus was talking about Peter. And upon you, Peter, I'm going to build my movement. But many of us have understood through the years another interpretation. Rather than Peter being the rock, Peter's proclamation Peter's confession is the foundation upon which a church is built. And that is what? That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Son of the living God. And so Jesus says, upon this confession, this proclamation and declaration 
of who I am, I'm going to build my movement, my ecclesia. That's the birthing of it right there. Before his death, burial, and resurrection, which actually launched it into space. Now, he goes on to say this is going to be such a powerful movement, it's non-stoppable. He says nothing, not even the gates of hell in the ESV. Uh, some other versions will read Hades. Uh, probably the best rendering is just death as to what he meant. Not even the gates of death, not even the taking of lives, not even uh, martyrdom can end the movement of what's going to happen with my ecclesia. Now, that's before the crucifixion. Let's look then what happened after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Flip over a few pages to the book of Acts, A-C-T-S. And we're going to look at chapter 1. Acts is written by Luke, who also wrote a gospel. So he tells you the whole gospel story, some of which we just uh, read from Matthew. And then when he gets into the book of Acts, he begins to tell what happened with this church. So uh, verses 1 through 5, real quick recap of the gospel. Then verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, These are the followers that are looking to gather around the Lord Jesus. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, let's talk about that for just a minute. What a question. As they had the opportunity to engage the resurrected Jesus. Okay. You have to, you know, you're back in time. So imagine you have been there during the time that he was in uh, the the precincts of Jerusalem. Maybe you got to hear him teach. Maybe you saw a miracle. Then you saw the horrendous crucifixion. Then you began to hear the stories about the resurrection. You you rubbed shoulders with some people that said, I saw him. I know he was resurrected. There's an empty tomb. And then a few days later, you have this opportunity to be in the presence of Christ, the resurrected Jesus. What do you say? What do you ask? What a question. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, sometimes I look at things that people asked in the Bible days, and I'm like, what? Where does that question come from? So just for fun, and I know my fun's a little different than your fun, um, I read a commentator who wrote a commentary on this 500 years ago. And we're a lot more politically correct today, right? And so today, if we come across something that seems a little bit off-center, we go, that is a strange question that those early followers would have asked Jesus. This commentator that wrote his commentary 500 years ago said, that's the most stupid question I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Not 
altogether PC. Uh, but I tend to agree with him. What, what are you talking about? But it totally betrayed their thoughts about the kingdom of God. It was still so Old Testament temple centric that everything God's going to do is right here in Israel and especially right down here in Jerusalem and right around this little temple area. So are you going to banish all of our oppressors and all of those who try to seize our country and, and suppress our faith and so on like that? Are you going to come with power and glory and restore everything to Israel and, and cause Israel to be great in the known world? And Jesus is so much more kind than we are. Because if it was me or this other commentator, we'd said, what? That's a stupid question. But Jesus said, you know what? Don't concern yourself with that. Nobody's going to know the time when God comes with great power and this kind of restoration day and all that kind of thing. So don't worry about that. Here's what you need to know. You are about to receive power. That's what you need to know. Jesus clarified to about 100 to 120 people who were already signed up to be his followers, already believing, already overwhelmed by his resurrection. He tells them, you are going to have power from the Spirit of God like nobody has ever seen before. And it's going to not only just revolutionize you, it's going to revolutionize this world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, you know, places like you don't want to go. And the end of the earth. And I can almost hear, because we don't have the entire conversation recorded here, I can almost hear them scratching their head and saying, the entire world, Jesus? Do you know how big the entire world is? And Jesus would have said, yes, I do, but you don't know how big the entire world is? And that's exactly what I mean. You're going to have power. So that you are a witness everywhere. To all people. For all time. That's the kind of movement that Jesus was launching. This wasn't just a Jerusalem thing. This wasn't just a Jewish thing. This, just, this wasn't just a here and now for that day thing. This was for everyone, everywhere, for all time. That's what I'm about to launch with you hundred or so people. And that's exactly what he did. Now, just to hasten through the story, some of you were worried I was going to read a whole bunch. Um, let's just turn over to chapter 2, pick it up in verse 22. So, Jesus ascends back to heaven. The disciples wait for the Spirit of God to fall on them in this powerful kind of way. And it happens at this time called Pentecost, big Jewish festival time. And at this big Jewish festival time, the power is upon the people in such a way they began to tell what they have seen. That's what the word witness means. Have you seen that Jesus is resurrected? Do you know that he's still alive? Yes, I do. And so you tell what you know. These weren't great theologians. These weren't great Bible scholars. Nobody had a Bible. They had just encountered Jesus. And uh, in this big gathering, verse 22, Peter stands up. Men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified. You killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, how's that for preaching? No soft peddling there. Somebody killed Jesus, but he wrote, no, you killed him. You crucified him. And Peter's message, you just have to remember, was recounting an event, the resurrection of Jesus, that had happened only two months ago, about two, less than two months ago. Okay, So this is not like we talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago. This was something that happened less than two months ago. And so if anybody had any question about what uh, Peter was talking about, what are you talking about this crucifixion thing? They could, he could have taken them to the exact spot where Jesus was crucified. What are you talking about this dead and buried thing and then resurrected? He could take him to the exact tomb where Jesus had laid and now a stone was rolled back and it was empty because he had raised again. And so all these things were not unverifiable. They weren't little hype things that somebody could get by with, little manipulations like could happen today. He was less than two months removed from all of this. And they were, they're listening to his message. Pick it up in verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, here's what happened. When the power came upon them, now remember, this is a big religious festival, Pentecost, at least from 12 different regions of the known world in that day. Jews had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And so they come with, even though they're, they're Jewish, God-fearing kinds of people, they live in other cultures. They speak other languages. And, and the miracle that was happening at Pentecost was all these languages of all these people groups suddenly were being spoken by these simple Galilean witnesses. They're like, how can you speak our language? You're just simple, common folk. And that was a miracle. God was allowing this language miracle thing to happen. And they're hearing it. And they're not only marveling that they hear it in their own language, they're marveling at the content of the message. Uh, and he has poured this out that you yourselves are seeing here. Pick it up, verse 36. So let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. In other words, it was very effective. It was penetrating and piercing their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers. What shall we do? See, we've just heard the clear message of the gospel. We've just heard that Jesus died an atoning death for us. Our sin's been paid for. He has resurrected from the grave and conquered death forevermore. What should we do about that? And Peter said, go join a church. No, if you know your Bible, he did not say that. <laughs> Peter said to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 to the movement. Now, stay with me. I'm just almost through. Peter, in this great assembly around Pentecost, gaining the hearing of thousands, was not passing on the teachings of Jesus. Those are extremely important. We value them. We study them. We treasure them. They are means by which God changes and transforms our lives. But that's not what he was passing on. He was passing on a witness. He was basically saying, I know Jesus is alive today because I've seen him, because I experience him, because he's real with us right now in this moment. And so he's passing on this event around Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Now, at the risk of being redundant, we really can't belabor that too much. It's important for you to know the Bible. A great price has been paid not only for you to have it from God who inspired it, but to have it in a readable, understandable language by forefathers that paved that way for us. Okay, It's a great treasure to us. But more than anything, do you know the resurrected Jesus? No, we weren't there 2,000 years ago, so we didn't see him in the flesh after the resurrection walking around on the, on the earth. We just take the word of those who said they saw it. But we, he, he's a living God today. He's alive today. And every believer through the succeeding generations and centuries after the first launch of the church has been able to continue that movement because they know him personally. I'm not just telling you about something that happened 2,000 years ago. I'm telling you something that happened two hours ago between me and Jesus. Is that what you have? Is that what you know? Is that your experience? You have a relationship with the living Jesus that you can tell somebody about. Now, this is so moving, the big crowd says, oh, my goodness, what should we do? We believe this. This is true. What should we do? And Peter says, you should repent. You should be baptized. You should be a recipient of all the promises that God brings through Jesus. Because the promise was not only for you. The promise was for everyone who is far off. The promise is for everyone in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and all over the world. Receive it. 
share it with people who have been far off. And what happened on that day, 3,000 believed, repented, were baptized, and then joined a movement. Now just think about that for a moment. 3,000 people. How long would it take to baptize 3,000 people? We had a great move of God in a church that I served before I came here. And um, in a short little window of time, we had about 47 people come to Christ. I did not baptize 47 people at one time. We baptized 20-something one week and 20-something the other week because it took a long time. How long would it take to baptize 3,000 people? What's the point of that? The point is this. It took day after day after day, perhaps week after week, to baptize all those people, which is plenty of time for skeptics, for cynics to come along and say, you know what, this is just a bunch of hooey. This is just a bunch of hype. There's nothing really to this. I know they point over here to Calvary and say that's where he was crucified. I know they point to that empty tube and say that's where he had resurrected from. But, but you know, this is just a bunch of charlatan manipulations, etc. There was plenty of time for all the naysayers to be able to convince large numbers of those people not to go forward in joining the movement. They couldn't do it. They couldn't convince them otherwise in however long it took them to get baptized. Because the movement was the real deal. Now, who was that church for? Who was that movement for? You realize this is a question that's popping in churches all across America right now? Is the church for church people or is the church for people outside the church? Meaning building. And the fact of the matter is, when the church was launched, it wasn't for church people because there weren't any. It was launched for everyone who was far from God. The church wasn't about style because there wasn't any. Do you know how many churches are up to here right now trying to figure out how they're going to do what they do because of style issues? What kind of music? What kind of decor? Uh, Which version will we read when we gather? All these kinds of style issues. This was nothing about the early movement. The church was and is about the truth of the resurrection. Jesus is alive. He can redeem and save your life now. You can have a relationship with Him now because He's alive and forevermore. The mission of telling that good news. It's always been about that, and that's what it's about now. The church has taken a lot of bad turns through the centuries. The church has done a lot of horrendous, awful, misguided things through the centuries. We're not going to take the time to unpack all that history, but it's been bad. And uh, it's the cause and the reason for a lot of people groups today to say, I'll have nothing to do with the church. And understandably so. 
But friends, that was never what the movement was about. And so much of what's going on in the North American church today is not what the movement is about. And there has always been some remnant of the church that got that, that understood that. There's always been some remnant that continued the movement by witness, telling what they know, telling what they've seen, telling what they experienced day by day with Jesus. And that he's alive. There's always been some remnant that would just continue to care for the poor, continue to care for the hurting, continue to care for those who are far off and disconnected from God. And of course, our question right now and over these next few days is what kind of expression of the church will we be? Are you the kind of person that builds your life on Jesus? Are you the kind of person who builds relational bridges to others for the cause of Christ? Who will talk about how you experience the living Jesus day by day? Who will care? Reach out, roll up a sleeve, serve, make a difference to those who are far off. Are you saying reach out and care for them so they'll come to Christ? Well, that's our ultimate hope because they matter to God and they matter to us. And as an expression of love, that'd be best. We'd hope that. But historically, whether people came to Christ or did not, the church cared. The church served. The church was an extension of the grace and the blessing of God to people anywhere and everywhere, whatever time. Is that the kind of church we will be? Let's pray. So God, thank you for reminding us of our beginnings, of our heritage of the kinds of brothers and sisters who have preceded us. And Father, we pray that you'd stir our hearts with this vision, that there would be a holy discontent inside of us for anything less than church as movement, church as mission. So Lord, help us to commit ourselves to you afresh in these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.